Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this morning's Flint briefing call on the situation in Ukraine. It's the fourth uh, of this series of calls that we have done from Flint. I'm Simon Fraser, managing partner at Flint, former head of the uh, UK Foreign Office, uh, and I'm in the chair again. And I'm joined today, as before, by Sir Julian King, the former EU Commissioner uh, for the UK, by Katie Whitting this week, a former Australian diplomat and expert on China and national security issues, and by François-Joseph Chichan, former French diplomat and head of the political section at the French Embassy in London. The Russian attack is grinding slowly on. Military gains have been limited, but the humanitarian consequences are grim, especially, of course, in Mariupol. As sanctions have ramped up, there's been more focus this week on possible progress in early-stage negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Top U.S. and Chinese diplomats have met in Rome, and President Biden will be talking today to President Xi of China in an important moment. Three EU prime ministers visited Kiev in the last week, and there's been more talk of uh, Turkey and Israel playing a possible mediation role. So what we're going to do today is to use this call to assess the main developments of the last week, and then to unpick the diplomacy, to consider the scenarios that might play out over the weeks ahead, and to focus in particular on China's position in this conflict. The call will take less than 30 minutes. So to kick off, François-Joseph, could you quickly run us through the most significant developments on the ground and in the diplomacy over the last week? Thanks, Simon. So I think the best way to describe the military situation on the ground is to say that it's become much more static over the past week. Um, the main Ukrainian cities are under siege. Um, there was limited Russian progress on the ground. The pressure is mounting on Kiev, but the capital is not yet entirely surrounded. So this phase of the conflict is more intense because it focuses on urban areas. And we've all seen the tragedy at the Mariupol theater a couple of days ago. The consequence of this intensification, fortunately, is a very concerning humanitarian situation with more than 3 million refugees outside Ukraine now, according to the UN. Another development is that Russian military operations have spread to the west of the country. Uh, we've seen the bombing of a military base close to Poland a few days ago and another strike near Lviv this morning. This is very much a message to NATO that Russia is ready to strike military assistance coming from um, NATO countries as soon as it enters Ukraine. This week, we've also seen the EU and the UK taking more uh, sanctions, targeting more Russian individuals and more economic sectors. Uh, but the EU has not yet decided to target the Russian energy imports. We've also seen military assistance increasing to Ukraine with a new US package worth $800 million announced by the US president two days ago, and which include drones and anti-aircraft weapons. Uh, behind all this, I think it's important to note that diplomacy is still very much live. Uh, we'll come back in a moment to the Russia-Ukraine talks, but I think it's worth noting that some Western leaders are also keeping a line of communication open with Vladimir Putin, particularly Macron, who spoke to the Russian president a couple of times this week. He's been criticized for that, but it could prove important and useful at some point if we enter a political phase uh, in the conflict in the future. Um, a newly emerging and interesting feature of the past few days is also the difficulty, at least for the moment, for the US and its allies to 
sort of rally round countries beyond the core group of NATO allies. Um, and we've seen some countries still resisting alignment with the US for various reasons. The Gulf, India, Turkey, Israel, China, of course. Um, so the US held talks with China on Monday. Boris Johnson was in Saudi Arabia, but got limited results on an increase in oil production. India intends to keep um, its close different ties with Russia for now. So these are important signals, I think, in terms of the world order that may emerge from the crisis. Um, not all countries, it seems, are ready to bet on US leadership long term. We'll come back to this and examine it in more detail in the coming days. So overall, uh, a very active week on all fronts, which I think show the multiple dimensions of this conflict and their ramifications for global politics well beyond um, Ukraine and Europe. Simon. Thank you very much, Francois-Joseph. That was a good summary. And we'll come back also to your point about the difficulties that the West seems to be facing in sort of rallying broader international support. That, I think, is a very interesting uh, point you've raised. Uh, Julian, let's turn to you now. Um, I'd like to kick off by looking at the negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, which have got more attention this week. They're, they're a subset, in a way, of wider diplomacy. Um, some say they're making progress. Uh, the United States Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, seems to be a bit more sceptical. So my question to you is, how seriously should we take these negotiations? What do you think is on the table and are Zelensky and Putin actually looking for a settlement bilaterally? Uh, well, good morning, Simon. Uh, I think we need to be careful about uh, optimism bias. So uh, we would all like to see uh, the, the, the fighting stop, the horrible violence stop. Uh, and uh, that colours, I think, sometimes the way we interpret um, events and the likelihood of different outcomes. Now, there has been an increase in uh, diplomatic diplomatic activity, as, as, as you've said, uh, and we've seen various parties trying to uh, encourage uh, contacts between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the Israeli prime minister has done some shuttling. There are conversations with Turkey. Uh, different people are reaching out to China. That's very interesting. And I think we'll come back to what China uh, might be thinking in a moment. Uh, and there have been uh, a series of contacts direct between um, uh, increasingly senior representatives of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, again, uh, as we as we think about this rationally, uh, we uh, assume that uh, people will want to try and find a, a way through. But frankly, I think wishing doesn't make it so. Uh, overnight, uh, as you say, Secretary of State uh, um, Blinken was was uh, expressing scepticism about the prospects for for talks. Uh, and I think if you look at what's been going on on the ground, um, you have to say that it doesn't look like uh, the two sides have yet reached a position where they see it as in their interest, their self-interest, to sit down and hammer out a, a negotiated settlement. Uh, diplomats often say that for, for, for negotiations to take place and particularly for negotiations to work, uh, you need both sides to have, as it were, exhausted the other options. I don't think we're there yet. If and when we do get there, uh, I, I think we also have to be a little bit cautious about how complicated the negotiations uh, uh, might be. Uh, it, I, it's not actually, uh, in my view, uh, the question of uh, neutrality uh, for Ukraine that is the most complicated uh, issue on the table. Uh, that there are various precedents and models that could could be used, and we've seen 
Um, uh, we've seen from Ukraine some indications that they might be willing to explore that, uh, those models. Uh, but there are other issues that are going to be very, very difficult. Uh, security guarantees. Why should Ukraine believe security guarantees that they're offered when the previous guarantees have so blatantly been violated? Questions of territory. Uh, those are going to be difficult. It may be we are in a situation now where um, Ukraine and indeed uh, the West uh, will find a way to accommodate the situation in Crimea. But uh, for, for the other territories that, that were occupied in 2014, and in particular for territory that's being occupied now in this war, that is going to be very, very uh, difficult. And last and by no means least, what's going to happen about sanctions? Uh, because if you're Russia, uh, your interest in trying to find some sort of negotiated settlement is going to be uh, very largely driven by your desire to see sanctions lifted as quickly as possible. Is that, is that going to be realistic, um, given, given the politics and indeed the public uh, revulsion that has been um, evidenced uh, after, this, after this violence? So I think if and when we get to negotiations, they are going to be very difficult. Okay, thanks, thanks, Julian. Uh, and to your list, I would add the the issue of reparations, which I think uh, people haven't focused on very much. But if I was Ukraine, I'd be looking at uh, reparations, and that's another part of this. So now, Julian, we're going to stay with you, um, and we're really going to make you earn your crust now, because we're going to ask you to look ahead in the light of what you've said, and give us some scenarios for how you think the possible outcomes uh, might play out in this conflict. Could you take us rapidly through some various scenarios and the probabilities of them? Uh, OK, well, I'm happy to have a go at that. Um, looking, let's say, two to three months ahead, because beyond that, I really do think you know, the crystal ball is a bit cloudy. Uh, I see uh, four, well, maybe three and a half uh, scenarios, which are... Uh, not mutually exclusive. So uh, it, it first, um, uh, Russia does enough to claim some kind of, of victory. Uh, uh, and I still think um, that that is uh, maybe 35, 40% likely. Uh, they, they do it either through further escalation, the sort that we've been seeing, or just by grinding it out on the ground. I think Putin has the motivation uh, see his his latest rants, uh, and frankly, uh, Biden classing him as a war criminal uh, doesn't make it easier for him to go into into reverse. Uh, I, I believe Russia does have uh, the resources, and there's a lot of um, uh, commentary on on the long convoy and all the equipment that's stuck in that convoy. Uh, but Russia has other uh, resources, which it is. Uh, redirecting to, to the Ukraine theater. It has capabilities that it hasn't used yet. I'm, I'm not just thinking of, of horrible capabilities like chemical, but they've got um, deep electronic warfare capabilities that they, that they haven't utilized in theater yet. Uh, Putin still has popular support for what he's doing uh, outside of the main urban centers. Uh, those people who in Russia who get all their news from from the from the state news service are are, are supportive uh, of this conflict, uh, and over time, as things go on, it, it is going to get uh, more difficult for Ukraine. Uh, but it but it would be grim. Uh, it would embed sanctions, and it would reinforce Western unity. Uh, 
Uh, second uh, scenario, um, two, the two sides fight to, to a standstill uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, I don't know, that's maybe 20, 25 percent possibility. Uh, it's an ex it would be an extension uh, of what um, Francois Joseph has just been describing, has been happening over, over recent days reflecting uh, the Russian uh, losses, the Russian problems, particularly logistic problems, the continuing material support that the West is giving to Ukraine and the way the Ukrainians are, are using it and deploying it. But I think I'd have to ask there, how long could that endure uh, a standstill, a stalemate, uh, before it evolves into uh, another kind of scenario? Because I, I think the Ukraine theater is, is just too big to stay a frozen conflict. So you get the possibility of a negotiated settlement you've, we've already um, touched upon. Uh, I think that's you know maybe 35%, somewhere over a, a third possibility over the next couple of months. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, um, uh, if and when the two sides uh, exhaust the other options and feel that this is uh, a, a way forward, they then have to grapple with the, the difficult issues that you and I were talking about. And that leaves uh, a, a fourth scenario or, or a, a third and a half scenario, if you like, the risk of spillover uh, of, of events happening outside of Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't put that very high at the moment, maybe maybe 5%, maybe a little bit higher than that, uh, that something happens um, uh, by accident or, or design from, from the Russian side uh, uh, in, in another country. Um, uh, and I think, I think there it's relevant that the longer that this situation goes on, the more Russia will want to push back against sanctions. Uh, when Iran was sanctioned, uh, Iran uh, attacked the banks uh, in the West. Uh, Russia certainly has uh, capabilities that are much more advanced than, than Iran to do something like that. So I'm not just thinking about uh, a bomb or a shell landing uh, on Polish territory. There are other, other things that could lead to spillover. Or, of course, uh, and I think this is a, a very small likelihood in the time frame that we're talking about, the next, the next couple of months, uh, something might happen in Russia. Someone might move against Putin. I think longer term, uh, he has done himself damage uh, with this, but uh, whether that will come to uh, an early head, I don't know. So there you are, Simon. There's a go at trying to assess some of the possible scenarios. Great. Well, thank you very much. So for you, it's either some sort of Russian claim of victory which is vaguely credible or a sort of fight to a standstill at which point uh, that might uh, morph into a negotiated settlement over time. Those are the three most likely outcomes. It's pretty difficult to uh, distinguish. It's pretty difficult to make a call between them I guess at this point but it's a very good context. So, so thank you very much. I note that you are not expecting radical change in Russia or a, a move to unseat Putin uh, I think some people may have more, you know, a different take on that, but I think it's very important uh, to hear what you say there. Even in, in the timescale that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. Well, look, thanks a lot. Now, Katie, uh, let's look at China. There's been a lot of comment on the Chinese role, both that they may be helping Russia evade sanctions uh, and even potentially supplying arms, and the Americans have been drawing attention to that, um, certainly that they have you know, not been taking sides uh, visibly, uh, uh, really, they've been sort of slightly sitting on the fence, um, but also that they may be seeking to position themselves to take a role as 
a constructive mediator at some point. Now, you're, you're an Australian diplomat who spent a lot of time looking at China. What's at stake for them and, and what do you expect them to do? Thanks, Simon. Um, so I think the first point to make is that China has been caught off guard. Uh, so not by the fact of the invasion itself. Uh, we'll probably never know whether China was forewarned, but by the breadth and speed of the West's response. So the stakes are all of a sudden much higher for China, and it's in a very difficult position. So on the one hand, it won't want to walk back from its no-limits friendship with Russia. Russia and China are very strategically aligned in their opposition to the US and the West. And although Russia is not a hugely significant trading partner for China in terms of overall volume, so it was 11th largest for two-way trade in 2021, it's generally in the top three suppliers of China's energy and China is very dependent on importing energy. But of course, on the other hand, China still needs to participate in the global economy. And it certainly doesn't want to see some sort of global bifurcation at this point that it can't control. So what does China want? Well, as you said, Simon, its ideal outcome would be to not have to pick sides. And we can see it's tried to do this since the beginning of the crisis. It's abstained from UN votes and mostly talked in very general terms about restraint and peaceful resolution of disputes. Um, but the fence sitting has become much trickier for China, particularly over the past week. So it's becoming increasingly difficult to turn a blind eye to Russia's behaviour and the pressure is piling on on China to do more. Of course, we saw the US briefed out this week that China was considering supplying arms to Russia, which would be a red line. So as a result of this, China's position is becoming less coherent. It says it respects Ukrainian sovereignty, but continues to criticise NATO expansion. It says it means to keep trading with Russia, yet some Chinese state banks have stopped issuing letters of credit for purchases of Russian commodities. Uh, it refuses to directly address questions about military support for Russia, but is providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And of course, Taiwan looms large in China's thinking. The fact that China seems to spend about a third of its public comment on the invasion of Ukraine talking about Taiwan shows just how significant it is. The CCP needs to reunify Taiwan with mainland China by 2049. That's the deadline it set itself. And China knows that any action on Taiwan is not likely to come without reprisal by the West. And so it's taken a number of steps in recent years to reform its economy so that in the long term, it will be relatively well protected from global shocks. But it's certainly not there yet. And the fallout from the current crisis is creating an economic headache for China. Uh, and, and, and this is happening at a point when ongoing COVID controls are also having a significant impact on China's finance hubs like Hong Kong and Shanghai. China is uh, very opaque and I think from a Western point of view, anyway, very unpredictable. Uh, at this point, it's difficult to imagine what China wants uh, beyond... Uh, it, it's difficult to imagine China wants anything other than de-escalation. Um, it's mostly refusing to address questions about negotiations or discussions with Russia, but it put out a press release last night about a meeting with the Russian ambassador in Beijing, which covered, among other things, security cooperation. So I think we can assume China is keeping uh, channels of communication with Russia open, uh, including via back channels.
But on the other side of the ledger, we had news overnight that she and Biden will have a call today. And this will be their first interaction since the invasion began. Uh, this is a positive sign, I think, that China might be more willing to play some sort of a constructive role, but it doesn't necessarily mean this will translate into something more meaningful. Being seen to have been cowed by the US is the worst outcome for China. So if Beijing is to have any influence over the crisis, it needs to be able to show it's doing it on its own terms. So I think it's looking like the next week or so will be quite decisive in terms of the role that China might play. Okay, thank you very much, Katie. That was very, really very interesting. I mean, there was some, there's a school of thought here which says that China is going to align with Russia and we're looking, as we, as we look ahead, we're looking to a sort of rather sort of, uh, sort of a Manichaean sort of east-west confrontation developing, which we, need to, uh, which we need to prepare for. I think you're saying something rather more nuanced, which is that China doesn't want to go down that course. It does recognise its integration in the international economy. It doesn't want to get hit by secondary sanctions by the US and other Western countries. That's a really important issue for business, of course, uh, in terms of the impact on trade and the and the global economy. Uh, but also, it doesn't want to be seen to be drawn into the Western camp in seeking to put pressure on the diplomacy. So, it is a delicate balancing act. Very interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. And as you say, let's see what comes out of the meeting of the two presidents today. So that, that brings us to the end of our, of our discussion. Um, we will look at that, uh, the outcome of that, of that meeting. There's also going to be a NATO summit in Europe next week. So that's something important to look forward to. Uh, no doubt the Russia-Ukraine negotiations will continue and we'll Keep an eye on that and on other potential mediation efforts. We're going to continue our regular Flint updates every day or two days, and also alongside them the series of more deep dive analysis that we have been doing. This week we did one on agriculture and on the impact of the conflict on investment. Uh, the next ones will include the UK Economic Crime Act, which has just been introduced and is relevant. Uh, we'll look again at the evolving trade implications. Uh, and um, I do want to look at this wider issue that we touched on about how successful is the West being in galvanizing broader international opinion uh, behind its position. So we'll come back to that. If anybody wants a tailored discussion or seminar or board briefing from the Flint team, please do let us know. Uh, if not, uh, we hope to talk to you again shortly and thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.